Welcome to the Everyday Whiteness podcast series, The Uncomfortable Conversations on Well-Meaning White People. This podcast is primarily for white listeners. It's also a podcast for all listeners who unconsciously operate through a lens of whiteness, regardless of the body that you inhabit. It's not meant to shame you for being white or thinking white, but rather to support you in having more awareness of the impact of your whiteness as a cultural code of conditioning. My name is Guru Nishan. I'm a disruptor of cultural indoctrination and actively support the dismantling of false identity by curating uncomfortable conversations on taboo topics hiding in plain sight. I stand committed to the ongoing dismantling of internalized whiteness within myself and to make visible what is often rendered invisible in business, community, and culture. I want to welcome today's guest. Her name is Tazima Paris. Uh, she is a sex coach and pleasure mentor for high-achieving women, 35 plus, who overthink and overgive and end up overwhelmed. She creates a space for women to prioritize pleasure and go for resentful, go from resentful to radiant. Tazima uses communication tools and practices from her 25 plus years of research and experience to help women increase their sexual confidence, clearly communicate needs, and hold healthy boundaries. I want to welcome you to the Everyday Whiteness podcast, Tazima. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. <laughs> uh, it's been a while since we talked, and so I just reached out, and I really appreciate you uh, showing up to be a part of this conversation series. And I'd like to start off my asking my guests, what is everyday whiteness um, or well-meaning white people um, mean to you when you hear that? Yeah, so... It's interesting because I've been around a lot of well-meaning white people most of my life. Uh, I grew up in a northern suburb of Chicago called Evanston. It is the home of the Northwestern University and uh, a lot of educated, liberal-leaning, left-leaning, well-meaning white folks. And it is, on the one hand, helpful for them to actually want to try to help um, but it often um, is uh, sort of gets a little interrupted periodically. I also have done a lot of personal growth and development. Uh, there are a lot of white people in those spaces. I have tended to be one of the only or a few um, black people or people of color in in the room or in programs with hundreds or even thousands of people. Um, and that's been a pretty normal part of my life as, you know, as a, as a person who is going for personal growth and wellness, well-being, health, all of those kinds of things, those spaces uh, and the price point on some of those spaces tend to be uh, exclusive to some folks uh, and also not as much of a priority, sometimes are, is not as much of a priority for people of color to be in those spaces also because sometimes the well-meaning white folks don't know how to handle concerns of people outside of their community and don't take the feedback well. And so on the one hand, uh, I've, I've had fantastic experiences with some well-meaning white folks and not every well-meaning white person uh, is 
kind of open or available to hear real feedback that could actually help them in moving forward uh, and being more inclusive and being more uh, connectable and uh, having spaces that are friendlier uh, or gentler for people of color and black people in particular. Um, mm. And and one reason I make specific uh, black, black people in particular is because anti-black racism is the most harsh <laughs> version of racism. It's, you know, has a lot of history. And if we handled anti-black racism and we handled uh, white supremacy um, and, and that, you know, the antithesis of those, you know, the kind of the poles of these issues, everyone would benefit. All the people would benefit, not just black people, all humans would benefit by us actually taking on anti-black racism and white supremacy and the roots of it and, and kind of the, the, the wallpaper <laughs> of the rooms that we're in and kind of the air that we breathe. If we, if we started addressing it and stopped lumping all people of color together, uh, you know, that would be, that would be really fucking fantastic. Fuck. And so essential. I mean, I just want to yeah. mic drop and pin this and just say, thank you so much for bringing this here because I have been saying, uh, saying this particularly or, or trying to specify why I speak specifically to anti-blackness or the black liberation movement specifically and not having the language you just brought. And I, I just really appreciate the distinction um, yeah. and the impact that it would make on all of us not just human. black people, not yeah. just white people, and and the lumping together of people of color and minorities and kind of this everybody in disadvantaged groups as if they're all the same plight. You said so much in that intro. Thank you. Yeah. Bam, <laughs> right? Like, bam, bring it to us. And <laughs> I also want you to, yeah, to, to now unpack some of this, bring us back. Um, you mm-hmm. had mentioned you, you have spent so much of your life um, in white spaces because of the path, like you don't end up as a sex and pleasure mentoring coach without having done a lot of internal processing and a, a, a black woman, I don't even know how you identify, I know you have a, a span and world of history and culture in you, um, yeah. but to name specific some things you named, Evanston, Northwestern University, a well-meaning, uh, educated, liberal, you know, uh, that that association, then you mentioned the personal growth group, really yeah. want to unpack that because spiritual yeah. spaces, personal growth spaces, and that the other thing you brought was not all well-meaning white people are open to the feedback needed to really be able to advance further. And yet there's a different, there's spectrums of well-meaning white people. And that's something yeah. we could probably unpack too. So I don't Absolutely. know where you want to start us, but maybe bring us some history because your bio tells yeah. us like what you're doing now, but like, tell us a bring us where you want to go. Yeah. Let me, um, let me start with how I identify. I identify as a black person. Um, the reason that I don't use African-American is because I'm an immigrant. So even though I grew up here and I sound like I have an American accent, my entire family is from Guyana, South America. That means that I have British colonial, like history slash influence in my world as well. And uh, with that kind of British colonial upbringing that I had, West Indian Caribbean upbringing uh, with my uh, my entire mom's side of the family, all educators, 
you know, multiple degrees, had schools, established their own schools, were excellent teachers, uh, that whole side. And then on my dad's side, several people with multiple degrees, you know, I wasn't the first person in my family, which I've been asked, by the way, if I was the first person in my family to have a degree. And I'm like, no, like bunches of people in my family have had degrees and have been teachers on all the levels of, you know, education. Um, and so the there is an I have an immigrant uh, experience in this country. I have a you know kind of a Caribbean experience in this country, uh, and, and that having its own kind of uh, striving toward excellence through education at all times. Like there's there is no like there is no you're not going to college. Like going to college wasn't even an option. Like it was like, just which college are you going to? Which university? What does the degree that you're going to get? And so I, I did that thing like I was supposed to mm-hmm. <laughs> and got the job in, in the, in the field that I studied, like a good, you know, immigrant girl, <laughs> like I was supposed <laughs> to, um, I didn't, you know, being a Caribbean immigrant also has its own kind of flavor as well of like, you know, because of the British influence, there's this whole emphasis on um, proper diction, especially in my home. So Mm. I wasn't allowed to speak colloquial vernacular at all. Um, I got in trouble for bad grammar in my home. Uh, It was it, it it was a huge deal to be educated and to pursue excellence at all times. So that standard of of um, excellence is just normal. It's not exceptional. It's not oh you you know one of the things I get often from well-meaning white folks is oh you're so well spoken you're so articulate. Yeah, everybody in my world is articulate. I like it's not a thing it's not a thing for me to have excellent diction or word choice or or whatever or pronunciation or and to correct and to know (laughs) the rules of grammar that was a survival tactic for me in my in my life um so you know that the the built-in assumption and and uh, of that of just being like oh your diction so like oh i'm just i have like metallic in my mouth yeah super cringy It happens. It happens all the time. And, and on the one hand, I can take it as a compliment. Sure. And I want to say specifically right now, I, this is not exceptional. I'm not an exceptional black person. I'm a regular black person. And a lot of us are here. There are a lot, like, I understand that, you know, the folks who are listening to your podcast are certainly people who are reaching for that, but this is not exceptional. Everyone that I hang out with is like this. And I have plenty of black friends. I'm not <laughs> embedded in white whiteness and white people all the time. Like I have plenty of back black friends and all my black friends know how to speak. All my black, like we all complain about this shit. And we don't, t- I promise you, we don't tell white people th- these, these things. We don't talk about it with white people because we're just, we're just annoyed by it. And we wish they knew. And it's annoying to have to tell white people like this is normal. Like it's not exceptional. Stop it. 
Stop it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not exceptional. And how dare you speak in such a sumptive manner, right? Like, and, and as black people, you choose to not even bother because why go there and put through the effort of that when the, the right. deep in assumptive non-humanity of it in yeah. the ask is, is horrible. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, yeah. I'm hearing you. And, wh- and why be bothered? Why, why should I, why should I do it? Why should I, why should I spend my valuable time and energy with someone who can't even hear what I'm saying? Mm. You can't even hear me. Why would I spend my time attempting to educate you on my personal experience, which then becomes, oh, I had this really interesting conversation with this Black person. And they said, no, I'm a Black person. I'm one Black person. Just like the the freedom of individuality that white people have, I am doing my best to have the freedom of individuality as myself as a Black person. It would be nice to be treated as an individual rather than a spokesperson for all the people who you assume are like me. Because I promise you, like even even being, you know, a Guyanese immigrant growing up in Evanston is a very particular kind of experience. There aren't any other black Guyanese people that I know of who live in in, who grew up in Evanston other than people who were directly related to me. Mm. We were the ones there were lots of Jamaican families, lots of, you know, a couple of Trini families, you know, even Barbados. If I were in New York or Trin or um, or uh, Toronto or uh, somewhere in you know Miami or something like that, where there are a lot you know larger population of Caribbean people, that would have maybe had a I would have maybe had a different experience. But even that is a particular and unique kind of experience, and I I I would prefer for folks to come with curiosity rather than assumptive um, yes. narratives pre pre-assigned you don't know me there's no way that you could know me until until we have a conversation just like I I can't assume that I know any particular other person and that that's really my desire as I'm moving through the world is to be treated with as much curiosity as I have for other people because I think people are fucking fascinating I love I love the humans I love the humans even the ones that are fucking up like it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. But like, be curious. I'm curious. Be, yes. Be interested. Ask, be interested. ask yeah. a different question. Think about how you would feel if, if you get asked the question you're about to ask someone. Yeah. Yeah. And, and don't expect, you know, for my experience to speak for anyone else other than me. Right. Yeah, it's not a I can I can speak to my experience. I can speak to kind of a collective experience among the people with whom I've interacted. <laughs> I can draw some correlations, but that's about as, as good as that's that's as about as best as I can do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Spo- um the the piece that you're talking about, this making you a spokesperson for you know for all black people, or yeah. and this person has one conversation with you and then you know can go and then broadcast. This yeah. is what this person said as if it's the spokesperson. Yeah. Um it, 
it just sounds like a verbal form of like tokenism, like, oh, you know, this black person, it's like confirming all blackness through this one conversation they have with one human like you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if white people assumed individuality of everyone else, the way that they assume individual individuality about mm-hmm. white people would be real, we'd be in a different location. Oh we'd my. be in a different location. Well said. This one time I asked a, a friend of mine, really good friend. She's uh she's white. Um, her mom's from Iowa and her dad is from Estonia. She's she's super dope. <laughs> lady. I, I just really like her a lot. She's super smart, you know, she's a <laughs> she's an entrepreneur, good friend of mine. But I asked her this one time. She she used to, we used to sometimes get together. Her her favorite like guilty pleasure was watching Young and the Restless. And every now and then I'd go over to her place and we'd watch Young and the Restless in the afternoons, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, there was this one particular scene where this white woman is just going bananas. She's like, she's nuts, you know, like she's like uh adding acting really erratic and like kind of loopy and you know it's dr- it's drama like it's a crazy white soap chick opera. on a soap <laughs> opera right so like classic right she's she's doing something really nutty and i was like hey i got this question for you when you see her doing this thing that this crazy lady thing that she's doing as a white person, do you feel like any like responsibility or like, does she make you feel bad for like, is she misrepresenting white people? Or like, do you feel like she reflects on you? And she was like, not one iota. Do I feel any responsibility for her behavior or any reflection? Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow the level of freedom that you must feel Mm. of not having any feeling, any responsibility, feeling any reflection, fascinating, fascinating. It's something I have never really felt in my life. My lived experience is if any black person is acting up, it's going to look bad for me and all other black people. If I'm a black person acting up and and what is like acting up, that's the other piece. Even right. with the with the major air quotes Mm. acting up if you're acting out of line acting out of what is normal quote-unquote normal or quote-unquote expected that there's going to be hell to pay or Mm. you're going to be held responsible or how dare you or you know this is going to look bad in front of white folks and like just that constant self-monitoring is is its own weight is its own kind of lack of freedom that is something that I'm reaching I'm I'm reaching for the freedom away from that all the time but it's an active lift it's an active conscious letting myself know I am not responsible for this person's behavior. I am not responsible to be the one who's the one who says X, Y, Z, or to be the one who dis, um, uh, diminishes the possibility of being perceived in a negative light. 
And the history of that, the history of the perception of blackness and whiteness and the virtue of whiteness and the this of black, right? And so that a public representation of acting out would would cast a bad look on all black people and that was actually wielded in real ways that caused real harm and still do. And so to talk about the heavy lifting of that, it's real time reconditioning in active trauma is is what I'm hearing. Yeah, I mean, and there's like this baseline of all these things that we are doing all the time. Mm. It's just a baseline of like effort in just living every day. It's a like, it's hard even to describe because it's just so like regular all the time. Like it's always happening all the time that even to step out of it and have a conversation with you about this is even some effort is to to like, kind of like think about it. Like, wait, how can I explain this in a way that it would make sense to someone who's not living? What you just said was fantastic. The example of not identifying in whiteness, like how white people can, how your friend could not identify with, with this acting out person. And it doesn't necessarily represent and how built into society and the framework, the invisible structures that whiteness represents. I think that really encapsulates it so well that another example that I've experienced is if a white person walks into the room, it's not like I acknowledge or get acknowledged with other people, even if we're one of few people in the room. So if I'm in uh, an all Chinese space or all black space or whatever, and I'm a few white people. It's not like the white people are like acknowledging each other. We don't even have a sense of collective camaraderie in whiteness. And I think that's a little symbolic or a mirror of what you just said. Yeah. And I'll I'll also um, give this reflection of, of having been in an all, um, I believe it was a Taiwanese event that I attended and I was there with a, a friend who is who is um, Korean and uh, white American. And we went to this event. It was like some awards something and half of it is in Taiwanese and the other half is in English. And, you know, I'm just there. And like, I knew a couple of people. I knew s- someone who was uh, participating as well. Um, and I'm there with my friend. And it was so different than being in an all white space like it was just a relief like just i'm not you know it's not all black people it's not all people that i'm familiar with i don't even really know much very much about this culture but like y'all your food is good one <laughs> one thanks and then just everybody was just like so happy to have me there and like oh are you enjoying the things and like you know they're like curious about me and like you know, I'm like, yeah, this is great. It is, it's awesome. And, but like, there's no, like, I didn't feel any need to be any particular way also. Cause I don't have any cultural context clues for the, this culture. Like I don't, I don't have any context in which to yeah. be with Taiwanese people. I don't know that much about their country. I don't know about that much about their culture. So I'm just there like 
again, with my curiosity, just being like, Ooh, what's this? Ooh, what's that? Oh, this is interesting. Oh, okay. Got it. Thanks for the English. Okay. And I'm, <laughs> you know, but once again, curious, you're just there, yeah. you're open, you're curious yeah. and you're, you're not inserting yourself. You're just present to the no, experience, I'm present to the experience, being in the merrymaking experience with them. But for you to distinguish how different that is than say being in an all white space and that it's mm -hmm. distinguishable because it wasn't like a pressure of you having to be a certain way. Yeah. And I also space. have, I have a, enough cultural codes for white people in America, mm. particularly in the Midwest. I mean, I grew up here. I've been on the East coast, West coast. I've you know lived on both coasts and have a bunch of American codes. But when I was in the Netherlands for a semester, uh, in when I was in college, I didn't have any of those cultural codes. I didn't know. And that was, I, I was literally the only person from America at the school where I was studying. Uh, so one, <laughs> there's that. I didn't have any, like any Americanness to attach to. And I'm just steeped in this Dutchness and they all want to practice their English. And, and I'm like, yeah, actually, can I, can I practice a little Dutch? I mean, I want to go back with like a little, little bit of Nederlands. Can y'all help hook me up? There? Oh. <laughs> Talk so, to us about cultural codes, break that down for a little a, a bit, bit for us. Cause I think you're bringing yeah. that so well in, in your own story in that yeah. people can assume you're just a black American and, and right. yet the culture that you come from, the island culture, South American specifically, there's, you know, the island culture can be different depending on the colonial history. A lot of people don't understand very, I say simple because I have had this world context view, but these assumptive questions of a lot of well-meaning white people will build in the lack of awareness of a worldview. And, yeah. and, and these cultural code, I think you're really nailing the language of that. Yeah. So, our brains want patterns. Our brain wants to stick things where it seems like they fit so that we can feel okay. So I really get that just in general with people and wanting to like figure out and navigate our world. So that's, that's, that's an aspect of it. So the codes are kind of, a code is basically the set of agreements oftentimes un, un, unspecified, like they're unwritten. never discussed, unwritten. Yeah, they're never discussed like, oh, okay, well, um, you have to speak in a certain way or you have to uh, look a certain way. You have, you know, not, not this much cleavage. You have to tone it down or, you know, being from the Midwest, for example, one of the codes is having a kind of a normal toned down fashion expression. So your fashion in the Midwest is a lot more subdued than it is on the coasts in general. But I also lived in DC and their code was like, I, I, I judge cities by their what's in the thrift stores. <laughs> and <laughs> like, if there's just some really great stuff in the thrift stores, like, oh, these people have style, like any thrift store in New York, you're going to find right, like ridiculous, crazy, like designer brands and like really uh, statement pieces and things like that. But in DC, if you, if you need a gray skirt suit in DC, you will absolutely find many at the thrift store. You can find anything you need at the thrift store. You need a gray, a gray or a blue pants suit or, skirt suit 
DC is gonna they got you. They've got you. The point being <laughs> is that every different area that I've lived in, I lived in San Francisco, I lived in uh, Los Angeles, I lived in DC, I spent a lot of time in New York, I've lived in uh, the Chicagoland area, I lived downstate in, in Illinois. And so we're always broadcasting our culture slash code, like what we've been indoctrinated into. We're always doing that just by our being. We're a reflection of the influences that we've had, whether we're embraced the influence that we had or we're rejecting some aspect of the influence that we had or some variation yeah. of that. Uh, and so we all use codes to fit in with certain groups of people. Uh, and when I say we all use codes, it, I do actually mean all the humans. Um, some people are more conscious about choosing how they're presenting in certain um, situations, while other people are on autopilot. Yeah. And I have personally cultivated the capacity to do most of it on autopilot but like, I just click into the setting. Oh, I'm here now. Like, let me be, let me do this way. And um, there is a, a, a term called code switching, which may have come across on your uh, podcast before, perhaps. We haven't but, yet. But so for those people who don't know what code switching is, it's something that Black people often refer to as uh, being with uh, people who are from our own culture, from our own backgrounds, and then switching into the code of, let's say, uh, your day job, your full-time job where you have to be quote-unquote professional, um, which gets into a whole uh, acceptability or respectability politics, which is a whole, it's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But um, code switching, going from a comfortable kind of home, how I speak to people in my home, how I speak to people who are kind of in my community, who are familiar with me, even my subculture communities of like, you know, I love, I grew up dancing to house music. So like, there's a kind of a sub subculture code in the house community, for example. Um, but all these different codes that I have access to, uh, okay, I say, well, I'm in this space. I'm not actively doing this in my mind, but there is like kind of a switch where I'm like, okay, now I'm in personal growth space. Now I'm in, you know, yoga, spiritual crystals and witchy shit space. And now I'm in, you know, some uh, with my black American friends and now I'm with West Indian people or like, so that having the, the, being able to choose different codes or different channels or ways of communicating is a superpower. Yeah. And it's also go, it's widely unknown to white people. And I, I laugh sometimes when, when white people find out about some of our language and then they think it's new. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, this shit is not new. It's just white people know about it now. Like when twerking <laughs> came out, I was like, what like twerking is not new like what when it was i guess it was the mid to early 2000s or something when when white people found out about twerking that was like booty shaking is is eternal like since there's been a drum and a booty like booty shaking has been happening like just because white people are just finding out about it doesn't mean that like it's new 
someone recently uh, put like a list of like new vocabulary words or new slang words or whatever, and janky was on it. Janky is like 20 years old. Janky for overs. What, like, are you kidding me? It's not new. It's not new. So like the fact that some, you know, these diversity and equity and inclusion conversations are, are coming up now just because the social justice conversations are coming up, just because, you know, wokeness is a thing now, just because these are new concepts to white people doesn't mean that this, the people are, have been, this is a new thing that people are grappling with. Yes. We have new vocabulary. We have people who are now in positions who can actually help. And I encourage white people, instead of polling their, you know, when something terrible happens to black people, instead of polling their black friends or their one black friend, stop it. Go do research from people who this is their job, who can break it down for you, can who can help you actually understand and go to black people who, who do this, not just like the, the white people who have now, you know, become like, there's a place, for, there is a place for the white people who are uh, speaking to these issues. It's true. Uh, the woman who did white fragility, like fine. And don't just go to her, go to the black people who can help you understand this. And don't come to me because I'm a fucking sex coach. <laughs> I want to talk about sex. I don't want to talk about this. This is not, I'm, I'm bringing my own personal experience. I'm telling some of the stuff that we experience for the, for the benefit of this show. And I don't do this on a personal level. I'm doing this because I know more than just you, Guru Nishan, are going to hear this. Yeah. I don't, I don't have any, it's exhausting to have this conversation just happen with one person. And I know I'm going to have it with another person. I don't educate white people anymore. I used to, I used to do a thing where, Oh yeah. Like you can just ask me, no, I don't do it anymore. It's fucking exhausting. I stopped. I promise you, I stopped a little bit before 2020, but I certainly reinforced everything about, I, it's not my job to educate white people in 2020 because a bunch of shit went down and it's not my fucking job i'm over here dealing with the trauma of being concerned about all of the people in my family and all of the people who are my skin tone who are clearly black people who are you know that we have a range of colors of black people but like there's no question that i'm a black person it's it's not oh what are you mixed with no i'm black i look black and for all of my family members who look like we're black who are treated in a certain way because we're black i went through months of deep anxiety in 2020 just on someone could get killed because there's some bullshit happening being i w- i was uh living in a in a a another part of evanston which is a little bit more um affluent than where i live now still it's still evanston so affluent <laughs> relatively affluent for you know the area 
but the point was i i was driving to, back home to my apartment uh, where i was living at the time and it was april and or april oh it was april 2021 sorry so it was after all this or anyway the point the point is it's post george floyd and it's post a bunch of shit that was happening and so i drive in this particular way because i can kind of take the back way you know to my to my place and the back way is like there's a main street and then there's a side street that's you know goes directly to to my place and then i can take that to get into the it's a one-way street and so it makes more sense for me to go this way and then that way then anyway so the point being i'm on this side street and i turn onto this side street and there's a cop behind me following me i i'm concerned that they're following me they could just be driving but because i turned onto this side street that's not the main street now i'm concerned like why are they behind me and following me in such a way and so i'm like focusing on driving perfectly and like my whole body is like having like this clenching and anxiety that's coming up and and I'm in Evanston and this is not supposed to happen and I'm black and I'm in this neighborhood and like there's a bunch of big houses around and it's daytime it's not even nighttime it's daytime and so for me to be racked with anxiety and just having this experience where my whole system is completely hijacked and I'm on high alert and I'm like shaking by the time I get to my apartment and I park the car and I'm like, you know, I had this really crazy, I had indoor parking, which was really fantastic at this place, but I also parked between a cement wall and a cement pillar. <laughs> so I had to like do all this stuff. So I had to do all this stuff while my body is like, ah! Like Be extra precise, right? Yeah. I mean, just like there was no space for messiness at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I just went to the apartment and I just laid down. It's mm. all I could do was just lay down because it was just so intense and nothing happened, thankfully. But like that was pretty much one of the scariest kind of five minutes of my life because like a bunch of people had just gotten that we're aware of. I'll also say yeah. that we're aware of. Yes. Have been killed for literally no reason. And while, you know, white young men who they knew killed people get questioned and are given a sandwich and are given, you know, organic food while they're in jail. Water. Like, like the, the discrepancy in the treatment, hmm. just so deeply offensive. It's so deeply offensive. And, you know, my personal experience has has i'm not even going to say who hasn't been that bad i i've had enough experiences that it's i know it's scary to to live and i also have to live i also have to keep going i also have to like 
I can't live my entire life being totally terrified all the time. But there are high points of terror. There are high points of really significant fear. There are high points of anxiety. There are high points of this is all too much and I cannot deal with society at large in general. Or sometimes I got to take a break from the white people that I know. I can't really talk to you unless I know that you're a safe white person. And I think, um, and let me make that distinction now though, is there, for me, there's a difference between a a white person who is safe and a white person who is well-meaning. A white person who is safe in my experience is a white person who can hear what I'm saying, take that feedback to heart and that you don't make it about absolving or or centering yourself in the conversation. Like if you are not trying to center yourself and you're actually listening to what is needed in the moment, whether it's something that I need or whether I'm bringing the person's attention to something that is needed in the community, like fucking curiosity, that is absolutely needed. And if there's nothing else that that gets heard today from what I say is be a white person who is curious and, and can hear. Take it in, take it on. Assume that something that you're doing is probably white supremacist because it's just the fucking, it's just how it is. And it's not black people's job to fucking explain it, explain it, to break it, to dismantle it, to break it down. It's white people's job. It's white people's job. Y'all have to fix this. We're at effect of the system, systemic, you know, racism, and policies and behaviors and and all of that, we're at the effect of it. There's not really a whole lot we can do as Black people to change it other than the people who are actively working in DEI spaces, who are bringing awareness, who are being paid to let people know, hey, this shit is fucked up. Hey, in order for this space to actually be inclusive, you have to have these XYZ pieces in place or you have to be able to listen. Those are the only Black people who can help. And it's still up to the white people to keep on it, to stay vigilant. I know it's fucking hard for you to hear this, but like, do you know how hard it is for me every fucking day to be dialing it in every day and to like have that baseline of how am I behaving, self-monitoring all fucking day? It's not, there's no comparison. There's literally no comparison. And feeling guilty about not doing enough is also not an excuse. I don't fucking give a shit. And not everyone, like my thing is, I I don't protest. Like I, I don't really, I'm not an out in the street person. It's not my jam. I don't like it. I understand the importance of it. But I promise you having lived 10 years in DC, you can yell in the streets, but the policy stuff is still going to be happening. The policy sh- shenanigans 
and the secret bullshit that people are doing and the shenanigans that are happening on the Supreme Court right now is not really going to be helped that much by me going to a protest because I don't I'm not passionate about it. I'm personally passionate about women's sexuality and pleasure. So that's my that's the the mantle that I pick up and go out to every day and like talk about and I want to be heard saying stuff about that. Why? Because when women are liberated from the sexual shame that we're under, that's a whole other thing and I can talk about that for a moment too in a moment. But if if I do that job that I'm really good and gifted at doing, then I'm going to change the world. I, that is my contribution to the world. And the people who love doing DEI stuff, who are getting paid to do it, pay them to do it. Yes. Don't look for a white person that's going to make you feel comfortable about it. Look for the black person who's going to let you know, here's what's up. Who care about shifts being made. And it has to come from the top down. And unfortunately, because we have these hierarchical systems all through our culture, the people at the top can't be ambivalent. They can't be ambivalent. They have to care too. Just because they're isolated and just because they're insulated from the experience of others, it doesn't matter. You have to, you have to work on it. If you want anything to change and if you want to be inclusive and you want black and brown people to stay at your institutions or to be comfortable or feel included, you have to work on it. And you have to be willing to hear what we're saying about what doesn't work. And you have to be able to not, to understand that we speak at a different volume. We're not toning it down. Like we tone, we tone it down so that y'all can be comfortable. But all of, we, a lot of us talk really loud. We love being enthusiastic about <laughs> shit. It's our jam. <laughs> it's not because we're fucking wild. It's because we're passionate. And we don't tone it down because it's important. Like what we're saying is important. And so many of us have not been heard part of Part of the loudness is the trauma. Also, I want to acknowledge that Mm, is the trauma of not being heard. You raise your voice because you're not being heard. And thankfully, thankfully, I've done enough personal growth work and I continue to do my work so that I can keep showing up in the cleanest possible way at all times, even in this space, even in this time, even in as I'm revealing some secrets that I might be, you know, some black people might be offended that I'm sharing. Because they're conversations you would have amongst black people, but yeah. you wouldn't necessarily share in white spaces and yeah. with white people because they're just, it's like, yeah. can you believe this happened today? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, it's like commonplace stuff. And that, that's where this whole thing, what you brought up around white people thinking something's new. And it's like, no, nah, this stuff ain't new at all. We just haven't been paying attention to spaces yeah. outside of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, yeah, welcome. Welcome. Yeah. And when, you know, when 9-11 happened and when um when the and Muslim people got put on the out list and when um you know when coronavirus happened and Asian people got put on the out list, I, I hate to say it. 
And what I was saying to myself in my mind is like, welcome. Welcome to being the out group. Mm. Like, this is it. Or even with trans women who are like, well, we're not being included. I'm like, welcome to being a woman. This is it. Not being included is part of not being a woman. Like it's fucked, but like get that that's part of the experience. Being a trans woman, not being included in, in women, women spaces. I'm not saying that is, I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying this is part of the woman experience is not being included. Like, please get it. Please get it. Please get it. And, and like, and the fact that, that like this welcoming that I've been doing is to the bottom of treatment in this society. Right. Like, like welcome to being outcasted. Welcome to this world of, yeah. of this normalcy, what you're talking baseline yeah. where everything's built in outcast of yeah. you and everything's in comparison yeah. to the standard of whiteness. Yeah. You know, what you talked about in terms of um, assume that everything that you're assume that there are at least some things you're doing that are supremacist because yeah. that's how this works. And until as white people, we realize, whoa, so much of my unconscious way of being is built with these systems and structures that I am purposely not able to see. And so mm-hmm. when you say that, it's letting us as white people to be like, wow, if, if you live from a baseline assumption that, whoa, that, that doesn't mean you collapse in guilt and shame. It means you pay better attention. It means you get more curious. It means you ask different questions. It means you start tuning into what's always been there, but you haven't been paying attention to because you've had the privilege of not having to. Yeah. When you don't have to think about the hard experiences of other people, when it's news to you <laughs> that other people have trouble with really basic fucking experiences, like going to a store, having a retail experience or having a restaurant experience, when it, it dawns on you, hey, fantastic. And keep working. Because <laughs> it's for us, it's never over. For us, we don't get to shut it off unless we leave this country or go somewhere where it's not as much of a thing. I have a lot of friends who have left the States and are having very, very different experiences in all, all, all parts of the world. Yeah. All, all other continents having very, very different experiences. And it's different. and you know, being American also has a a specific, um, yeah, it has a specific code. It has a a specific um, kind of effect on other people. Um, I I wanted to, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's it's just, it's different. Um, But I wanted to say something also about my experience as a a sex coach. Um, And if you don't mind, I'd also like you to go into like with some of those spaces and the self-development stuff. I don't know. Oh yeah. Personal growth. But but the whiteness of those spaces is something that's really blown me open as I've seen what I just a year ago, I could see. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, smoke. So go, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about sexuality coach. Yeah. So sex coach, um, 
personal growth, development, coaching in general. I started out as a holistic health coach. I've taught yoga. That's where I started. I wasn't, I didn't, because I didn't even think that being a sex educator could be a job that I could do. Like, that's not a, just like I didn't know that you could be an artist, a professional artist. I probably would have been an artist if I knew art school existed, but I didn't know. I knew that academic school existed. (laughs) (laughs) Go do that. So I did that. What we're exposed to, right? What we're exposed to and the path you're told you have to take versus all the things that are there, right? And just, right. And, and, and literally familial influence because I I'm from an academic family. So, you know, there are artist families that I learned about much later. (laughs) I was like, Oh, they exist. (laughs) You're an artist. You went to school. Interesting. I totally get it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. So, um, so yoga, I found out that I liked uh, in 2000, 99, 2000, my, my husband was doing it. And my husband at the time was, was doing yoga. And I was like, what are you doing? What's that? I want to do that. <laughs> so I got checked it out. <laughs> and then I, you know, I was, uh, at the time I was in, in uh, Maryland, uh, DC area, DC, Maryland, Virginia area. And I went to this place and I was volunteering so that I could take this dance class. It was an Afro-Cuban dance class. And I was like, yeah, I'll take the Afro-Cuban dance class and I'll check the people in for yoga. I'll do my little, you know, uh, work study situation. Okay, cool. So uh, I was checking in for yoga and taking Afro-Cuban dance class. But then one time I was like, oh, well, let me take the yoga class and see how that goes. I take the yoga class and it's like, okay, this is, this is, this is something. This is, I, I'm, I think I really like this. I think I, I was also born into a track family and I was the slow one. So painful, emotional scarring continues. <laughs> anyway. Historical. Yeah. Tra- childhood trauma. Fine. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and so like being able to do something, <laughs> hold on. <clears throat> Being able to do something that is physically challenging and actually being able to be good at it was a a revelation for me. So I was like, oh, wow, fascinating. Okay, great. So do that. And then I'm doing yoga classes and I'm taking these yoga workshops and I'm getting my yoga teacher training and all the stuff and everybody's white. And then I'm, I'm like looking for, I'm looking for a teacher and my my the teacher with whom I did my yoga teacher training is a black woman. It was actually a two black women who opened a yoga studio, and our cohort was mostly black, which was delightful. And you know there were some Asian people in there and some other folks and a couple of white people, but it was an unusual space to be in. But every other yoga space that I was in, including the studio where I taught for most of my yoga career, uh, when I went to California and lived on the West side in in Los Angeles, Santa Monica and Venice and, you know, and Marina Del Rey, all of that was very, very white. And that whole culture was very white. Um, Holistic health was very white. When I went to holistic health coaching school, you know, it's a class of the thousand something people. And I'm like one of a few, like a handful of black people. Um, I went to landmark and did that training. Like I said, another, just a handful of black people in my 
uh, personal growth and development here in, in the Chicago area through the Wright Foundation. Uh, and I went to Wright Graduate University and got my degree, a master's degree there. Uh, it's just a smattering of black and brown people. And I was in California doing programs for speakers, smattering of black people. And it's just, it's always like just a few of us. And when I'm in these spaces, one of the things that we talk about is, uh, yeah, sex coaching school, same, uh, you know, hundreds of people, hundred plus people, me and uh, the, you know, a couple other black people I've and <laughs> the number of times and we, you know, black and brown people, we joke about it, uh, saying I'm the other black lady. No, <laughs> I'm the other black lady. No, you we not. We look nothing alike. We look n- literally look nothing alike. But they're calling each other, e- us each other's names. Oh. We look nothing alike. Have you seen us? Just because we're significantly different looking than you doesn't mean that we're interchangeable. And we talk about this all the time. Like I'm the other black person. Wow, that, that one's not me. That's like common lingo. I'm the other one. I'm the other black, like I'm the other black lady. Wow. The fact that it has happened so many times to me in literally all of those spaces that I've shared with you, everything that I just mentioned, whether it's the yoga, the holistic health coaching, the uh, speaker coaching, the uh, sex coaching, whatever other programs, it has happened at least one time in all of those spaces. Every space. Wow. Every time. And these are, I'm specifically talking about ongoing events. I'm not talking about one-off events. I'm talking about we're together month after month for a year or years. I'm talking about spaces where people actually fucking know me or should. Wow. I'm the other black lady. So it's not... Um, it's not very affirming yeah. to be one of one of two or three black people and the white people around us can't figure it out who we are. And the, 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 the level of the different, I can understand, like there are some, but there are a few people who look like me that are not my family. There are a few, we like, I have a few kind of, doppelgangers like kind of we look similar but i promise you in every one of these situations y'all didn't they they were it was not that kind of a situation and and this is i think what bothers me the most in hearing it and what i feel in my body like the cringeworthiness of it is that you have identified or illuminated the pattern in all these spaces that are not related spaces they're ongoing spaces so again they're not one off oh by mistake and not only is it not affirming to zima it's 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 a lack of humanity right and so for you to already be a handful one or two that look different than the mass like that's more likely we should just confuse all the white people to each other you know but Again, the repetitiveness, the patternness of it is what has the historical roots that I don't personally, as I look into white spaces and what's bothering me so much is noticing how little white people are paying attention to what's happening present day is actually 
so historically rooted it's it's historical memory that in all black bodies and all brown bodies like this stuff is so remembered even if it's not consciously remembered it that's like what whistle call is it's like when something is done and it brings up such historical abusive violent memory in the bodies of black people And for white people to be so disassociated from their participation in in not even being able to recognize the thing, much less know the historical roots of the thing. Yeah. But when I heard you say, that's fine, glad you're noticing it, now keep working. That's what the keep working is. The keep working is now start to look at how historically rooted this is, how familiar Mm -hmm. this is, how when this happens, what happens in the black bodies ripples across to all your family members everywhere across your planet, because you know what this means in a kinesthetical rooted body-based level. This isn't like, oh my God, can you believe that happened? How terrible. Yeah. So one, one, uh, PSA that I I like to make with with white folks is when you say it's really I find it insulting to say I couldn't imagine what it must be like for you. Mm. I want you to white people to imagine. Go ahead, take some time, even right now. Your natural hair color, just let's take something as obvious as your natural hair color, not even texture, just the color of your hair. Because I promise you, I I find it fascinating that white people identify people on hair color. I'm like, what? Because <laughs> like, it's not, a, for black people, it's not really a thing. I'm, you know, like, that's not an identifying fact. Oh, if she's a blonde or brunette or a redhead. Or, like, we're not there. Like, it's not a, it's not oh, a thing. Interesting. It's right. It's not interesting. So hair color, because white people notice it. If everyone that you know with your hair color is being persecuted, killed for no reason, being uh, corralled, imprisoned. And I'm, I'm saying it specifically in the way because of how insidious it is for Black people. Just imagine that your hair color in particular is the one that has been singled out to be persecuted because y'all are criminals and there's something wrong with y'all and you're the scourge of society and you need to be held in bondage and you're less than human. So if you imagine that, would you color your hair? Would you cover your hair? Would you shave it off? Like, what are the things that you would do if everyone who had your hair color were in danger? What would you do? And how much would you think about that? How much would that be a thing for you to consider in your world? And so that's what I need for white people, well-meaning white people and ignorant ass white people <laughs> and dumb ass oh, white people, like all the white people are full spectrum of white folks. <laughs> Fucking get it. Try that one on for size, okay? Not, not how would it feel if people were, no, what would you specifically do? What would be your strategy for survival if everyone with your hair color were being persecuted? 
or we're being assumed to be the worst, less than human individuals. What what would that do to you? What what would what would you what would your strategy be? That's the thought experiment. That's that's what I would like for when when you say, you know, if someone says, I couldn't imagine what this must be like. Oh, this must be so terrible for you. Make it fucking personal. Do it. Cuz it has happened. It's not just us. Ask the Irish people. Like if you need a white ex- if you need a white example, Check out the Irish folks. Yep. Go ahead. Cause because that's all everything that England did <laughs> to, to the Irish is what they use. They use that framework to subjugate people all around the planet. They just right. started there. And so, and this is something that I only learned recently. And so if I can learn a little something recently, everybody can. can. Some. You can learn right. something too. You can learn something too. That's right. And I'll tell you that as we start to do our own research, what we don't do is go to our Black friends and ask them stuff. Because what happens is we start to get so familiar in what Black people already know so well. You know, the stories, the the, the images, the leaders, the, you know, just the, the real experiences of what it means. And if you don't let yourself get marinated in the real history this is our history and a part of supremacy is separating it as if black history is different than than in comparison to your whiteness because your whiteness only exists because of the subjugation purposeful subjugation or anti-blackness movement this entire society is based on slavery everything about the society is based on slavery everything there's not one aspect of the society that is not doesn't have a root somewhere deep down in subjugation of black people that's right everything about it everything and so when black people are bringing this stuff to light or saying hey we need you to get this aspect, whatever the aspect is that they're pointing out, fucking listen. And it's not about you being a, a racist or whatever. We are. White supremacists, like it's not about you as a person. It's about how you're operating. Yes. If you're cure, you can have things that are going on for your, in your mind, just like I do. Like I am dealing with, I deal with my own my own internalized sexual shame, for example, okay? I have internalized sexual shame. People are shocked to hear that from a woman who is a sex coach. But it's because I have looked at the effects of my internalized sexual shame that I'm able to operate differently, that I'm able to say, hey, guess what? Here's what you can do. You can do step one, step two, step three, and then you can start to feel liberated also. Do I still have internalized sexual shame? Fuck yes, I still do. Am I working on it every day? Fuck yes, I still am working on it every day. And that's on top of the baseline of all the other bullshit that I've been talking about. 
And it's, <laughs> it's baseline trauma that you're constantly yeah. having to operate in. And, yeah. and, and the point that I think you're making that's so, so important is that the operating system we come from isn't a reflection of who our essence is, it's a reflection of where we come from. It's the experiences and where we get those imprints. And so to assume, to just start coming back as white people to assume, yeah, we operate in supremacist ways and we don't even know it. And so this is a part of the, the work is to just bring ourselves into a that acknowledgement that's a baseline acknowledgement then you start to have to notice all the ways that that's possible and some things are going to be shielded to you purposefully and so hearing this go back and play what Tazima has shared on this episode because she's breaking it down and a lot of things that are meant to be invisible are being made visible right here and it doesn't mean it it's fixed because you notice it doesn't mean it's changed because mm -hmm like you just talked about with your own internalized sex shame, sex, right? Shame. Yeah. We notice it. So now you're operating. You could be like there, I'm doing that again. Oh my God. And the Look only way you can choose something new is to notice where we've been programmed, how to play. And so it's yeah. this curiosity piece you bring in the, the underlying assumptions that we have to really go into the world because as as white people, we've been taught to not pay attention to black spaces and therefore we're not paying attention to things that we absolutely have to be participating in changing or it's not going to change. Or it's not going to change. Yeah. And so my, my encouragement for those listening and, you know, for white people in general is just find the place that you fit in. Find, find what, find the place where you can like, even if it's, you know, when I hear someone telling an uh, telling a, an inappropriate joke about black or brown people, I'll say something or uh, whatever. You don't have to even have like a, a quip or a comeback or like anything planned. It's actually better for you to just say something like, hey, I noticed that that joke was inappropriate. It could literally be that. But like, if you just make that commitment, just do that one thing that'd be fantastic. Or like, I've been eternally grateful for the white people who have been in spaces where I was, who stepped in on my behalf or on behalf of black people to say, hey, it's not okay for you to be asking this question. Because when I say it, mm. it's different than when they say it. It's heard in a different way. There are things that I can say and that you, Guru Nishan, could say, and it would land in two totally different ways. And we could literally be saying the same sentence or bringing up the same point. Yes. And for white people to commit to saying those things that matter, that make a difference, even if their voice is shaking, even if it feels super uncomfortable, even if they're sweating bullets out of their armpits and their whole shirt is a wet, wet after, like if you're shaking after, it's fine. Like get uncomfortable because I promise you, I promise you, you being uncomfortable is going to help someone. It's going to help someone you don't even know. You don't even know. Having that awareness be built by someone who looks like them versus someone who looks like me, it makes a huge difference, huge difference. And that's why my, my main job in my spaces is helping my white friends get this stuff. Hey, well-meaning white friends, here's the thing. <laughs> Go ahead and say the thing that I really, it's not as effective if I say it. I'm going to be over here talking about sex. 
go here. <laughs> but you it's say so this brilliant. It, it's really what you're saying is it's just so important. I, I feel like it's so brilliant. And it's something that really hit me like a ton of bricks a year ago when I realized, oh my God, my not my override, my training, my cultural upbringing as an other prevented me from participating in white spaces because I also was avoiding those spaces. And I was like, dang, well, I'm not actually helping anything then because I'm hiding out. I'm hiding out in safe places, right? And and the job of building space as I built more safety in my body, right? Then I can start noticing things that I wasn't yet able to tend to before. And a part of it is my white exceptionalism, right? So all the ways that we can be well-meaning, conscious, and and vocal and still have the roots in in, in supremacy and not even know our operating systems. Yep. But that's a part of getting aware, right? It's it's coming it's coming back alive to have more of ourselves than just our cultural codes of conditioning run us. Yeah. Yep. For sure. You dropped some gems here today. I just have <laughs> to say, like wowza! I I know this is um, exhaustive. Um, I appreciate your discernment of saying, you know, this is worth it, even though it's effort and it's not paid all the things you made really important points around why black people, black women, black men, why black people shouldn't be the ones leading this conversation. And I really also value that you came anyway to share, um, and know, know that that'll be amplified to more than just one person. So it's not just a a one-off moment. Um, any last words, last things you want to say to well-meaning white people on this episode? Yeah, um, don't worry so much about how you're going to look when you say the right thing. Like saying the right thing is about s- saying and doing the right thing is critical. And if you're too concerned about how it's going to look, or if people are not going to like you as a result, like at the end of the day, you're the one who has to live with yourself. And the, the more we know, like that's the, that's the rub. The more we know, the more we educate ourselves, the more that we actually like become more responsible. And that's right. That's why, I mean, that's literally why it's so important for us to keep doing the work and get support, get support. Like, don't try to just do this. You don't have to, don't become a white savior. <laughs> like, don't, don't do that thing either. Um, you're not going to save don't everything. Don't do that thing. You, you, can, you can do a little something in the space that you're in, you know, and it, and it does make a difference. And, and everyone doing a little something in the space they're in is actually what is going to change the culture more so than like some big huge effort by one or a few people it's like it's all the little things just like you know the microaggressions which are actually aggressions but they're only microtized or minoritized because white people aren't being affected by them isn't that interesting what a distinction they're actually aggressions and it's actually gaslighting it's like gaslighting i'm seeing gas i'm i'm seeing how black people are gaslit out of all the time now i can't unsee it and the more i learn about trauma in my particular body the more now i i can only feel yeah 
black people more in awe, like yeah. in awe. Like, and, and that's the like, thing. That's what I mean by get the support, like do your own work so that you can feel other people, all the other people, not just like your yoga people, not just, you know, like (laughs) literally do your thing so that you can feel better. Like the reason that I help people on such deep levels in sexuality is because I've done my own work and I keep doing my own work. The inner work is the only game and then being brave and courageous to say the thing that needs to be said and do the thing that needs to be done and be the voice, even if you're the only one, like the number of times I've been the only black person. Mm. And then if I were to hide in that space of being the only black person, I'm very conspicuous. I'm a very conspicuous (laughs) black person. I'm, I'm a conspicuous person in general. First of as all, as a human, yes, as a human are. being, I'm <laughs> yes, pretty fucking conspicuous. <laughs> and to be able to show up and keep showing up and keep showing up, keep showing up and keep showing up and doing the work so that I can keep showing up. That's literally all you can do. That's all we got. That's all we got. And I, I want to just highlight the importance of the work that you do, you know, as a, as a trauma healing activist, as a survivor, I keep coming back to, you know, pleasure is my compass, right? Because what you're speaking to is like a regulated nervous system has more capacity to speak the truth and has more capacity to see what's happening in plain sight, as opposed to coming from trauma response and seeing things the way that we are coded to see them. Um, And so I I just want to really, again, amplify and highlight the brilliance of your process and your journey. Um, The you brought so much richness here, you know, from giving us a snapshot and, and just a, a, literally a tiny Polaroid into your immigrant experience and like what that could possibly be like, which because, you know, the island experience is very different as a black person than uh, and, uh, um, the American experience. And yet you also spoke to the American experience uniquely. And then you also spoke to again, what a lot of black people don't necessarily have language but they do all the time. You talked about code switching. You talked about tone, you know, how tone regulation, just all the ways in which the agency of Black people is monitored and um, extracted simultaneously. And as white people, for us to pretend that we don't even know that what's happening, and then we come to this new word, or we read this one book by D'Angelo, you know, a white woman that explains and suddenly we're like, we feel the camaraderie as if it's new. And, and, and the pause of that is realizing, whoa, how can I just be learning this in 2020 when there's such a very deep and dark history um, that's always been here for me to read and research. Yep. And that's the built-in supremacy. That's the assumptions that we need to know that there's no way we can come out of this experience in our bodies and not have built-in supremacy, not have built in the myth of white supremacy, as I like to say. Yeah. yeah. Because it's so false and yet it's a cultural code that is absolutely operating in very real time. Yeah. 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 yeah thank you for having Nailed me. Nailed it today. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, woo, and I know that there's so many more places we could go. So let's not even pretend that's not yeah. the case. You know, let's, let's, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, we might even come back around and, and um, 
and, and, and speak to, you know, the other side of it's like, how do we manage this much trauma and Mm. reconnect and stay in our pleasure? And I think that would be an absolutely whole other conversation where we talk about that reinventing ourselves real time because that's what this work is really all about we can't be activists of anything we can't stand for something if we're not rooted in anything and if you know if our roots are all rotten and we don't even know what the roots are we don't have capacity we'll just burn out um so yeah you really brought it i really appreciate you tell us about your song so um so this song uh I found it because algorithm radio, I really appreciate (laughs) algorithms that bring me good, good songs. Um, So this song is uh, called I Owe You Nothing. And it really is for me, it's like the, it's like taking off that um, other people's expectations about who I should be. And that I don't have to do all the things that you're expecting me to do or react in the way that you're expecting me to react. I'm over here doing myself. Like my only assignment is to do me. And this, this artist is really, she's a young woman. I'm like, it's so sassy and like, but also a jam at the same time. And so um, because of the light in the light of this conversation, um, this song is really, um, uh, this song has been helpful for me, not just in, in these kinds of spaces where we're talking about race, but like also in my interpersonal, you know, when I've had breakups and difficult, uh, situations for, with, uh, my ex-husband and, uh, other, you know, ex-partners where they've come up, it's sort of this, I know that we've had a way of being that existed in a space, particular space and time, but I'm no longer subscribing to the role that you have given me in your world. Mm. Mm. And so I'm defining for myself who I am and I'm going to be operating and I owe you nothing. I owe you nothing. I love it. (laughs) Well, folks, we are going to listen here to uh, I owe you nothing by Sianabo Say. Do you know if I got that right? I do not know. <laughs> you don't know. Okay, well, we tried the best we can here. And um, as we know, we don't listen to the whole song because of copyright purposes. However, you can listen to the Uncomfortable Conversations on Whiteness podcast playlist on Spotify and hear the whole song. So here we go. Chills. 
she, she brings it real hard. <laughs> she brings it real hard. She's not playing. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to listen to that whole thing. Oh, well, yeah. thank you, Tazima. It has been a pleasure. Um, if you want to connect more with Tazima, the uh, connection to her website and to her social media handles are in the show notes. Please be connected and stay connected with her. And replay this episode. There were some serious gems and, and serious teaching on this on this episode, folks. So thank you again for all your time, your energy, and your pleasure. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Okay, talk to you soon. Well, folks, this has been another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations on Whiteness podcast. Uncomfortable Conversations on Well-Meaning White People. Please remember that dismantling whiteness is an everyday, all-day, lifelong endeavor. It does not end. It's a commitment to think, do, and live better than we've ever been expected to or allowed to before. Dismantling white body supremacy begins inside of you, inside of me, and inside of the collective we, in our personal commitment, in our own bodies of culture, to grow the white experience beyond assumed supremacy. I invite you to listen, to learn, and to grow beyond the limitations that whiteness has and continues to impose on all of us. Thank you so much for your listening support, and we'll talk to you on the next episode. The information presented in this podcast are for general educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed are solely the views of the individuals involved. By listening, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Nothing in this podcast is intended to replace the services of a trained therapist, doctor, or health professional, or otherwise to substitute for professional mental health, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Gurunishan LLC and affiliate organizations shall under no circumstances be liable to any listener of the podcast or viewer for any action or inaction on your part as a result of the content you consume on this podcast or for any adverse reaction, including any emotional distress you experience as a result of consuming this podcast. 